my only good story is I met a monkey at, at an inspection for an acquisition. I mean, that's it was a smoking monkey. I'm sorry. That's my only really good acquisition. Can you, can we? I'm sorry. We're going to need a little more information. A smoking monkey? This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right away professionals for right away professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. On today's episode, fixtures. Don't turn it off. Don't turn it off. You know what's weird? What? When I started in this industry, I had no clue what a fixture was, nor did I have any idea how just monumentally important fixtures are to the whole process? It is incredibly important. And the, the thing about fixtures is that it's an important determination and analysis on the front end of a case, mm-hmm. and it can turn right back around and pop up at the very end of the case. It's a fascinating intersection between appraisal, relocation, law, and determination of fact. But first, before we get to the show, I want to thank This episode sponsor, Blackbird Right-of-Way. Blackbird has long been known for its expertise in relocation, but did you know that Blackbird is a full-service DBE-certified right-of-way firm? Thanks for joining us, Blackbird. We have with us today appraiser extraordinaire Bob Grace. Now, Bob's been a friend of the show for quite some time. In fact, we tried to have him on last season in season two, but for one reason or another, it it just didn't work out. Bob Grace is a senior appraiser with Grace & Sons Appraisal, where he serves as the head of the firm's real property valuation and consulting practice. Bob has served as an appraiser for the firm since 1994, and he has over 20 years of experience providing business and financial advice to clients operating in a broad range of industries, including, among others, lending, energy, chemical, financial service, commercial and residential real estate, and utilities. Bob's experience includes advising clients in connection with class action claims, eminent domain proceedings, environmental damages to real estate, real estate consulting, highest and best use analysis, and development of expert opinions for federal and state court. Bob loves the outdoors. He's got five kids, and did you know he used to be in a band? Is he still in a band? I don't know. We should ask him. Hello, Bob. Hi, Bob. How are you? How are you guys? I'm good. How are you too? We're great, but we have a a burning question for you. Um, Okay. Are you currently in a band? (laughs) No, I am not. I have enough kids uh, to start my own traveling band, (laughs) Um, but I am not currently in a band. No. But you were, right? I used to be. Yes. Used to be in a band. Yeah. I used to do a lot of singing. So you were a singer, and did you play an instrument? I did. I played a little bit of uh, rhythm guitar, which means I really only knew three or four chords. That's all you need. And that's all you need, right? It was country music, too. So, yeah, lead, rhythm guitar, and uh, we had a lot of fun. Probably too much fun. I think this is our first bona fide rock star on the podcast. Yeah, and would you say you were more like Angus Young or Malcolm Young in your band? Malcolm Young. Okay, a bona fide rhythm guitarist. There Got, you go. It. Bona Got fide. it. So. Yes, yes. Not no no Angus. No Angus. My shirt was on. I didn't wear shorts. <laughs> you didn't dress like a schoolboy. Yes, that was not me. I was not Angus Young. Yes, right. true. We won't ask you to sing in this episode. We might, but we've got a 
topic, which is extremely important from my perspective. I tend to get involved in these cases and eminent domain cases or right-of-way matters much later in the process sometimes. And you, the an appraiser, Bob, you're sometimes the first person on the scene or one of the first people on the scene. you got to be there even before the negotiator, but not before the title examiner. And you're the first one to encounter this issue of fixtures, right? And so you're the person who has to at least make an initial determination. Now, before we get started, and I think what I want to do is I want to read what the Black's Law Dictionary definition of fixtures is, all right? And then we can talk about whether we, you know, whether we deviate from that. But Let's hear it. Yeah, Black's Law says fixtures are items of personal property that are attached to or otherwise incorporated into a building or land and are therefore regarded as part of the real property. So what's the significance of that? If it's part of the real property, it has to be valued as part of the real property. And if it's personality, then it's going to have to be moved under the Relocation Act. So that's the that's really what we're talking about today. Yeah. And so, but the definition is what's what kind of confuses it in, in a lot of people's heads, mine included, which is like it is personal property, but it's part of the real property. So it's not personal property, but it is. But it's not right. It's what you do with it that, that really matters. So, OK, we've got the Black's Law Dictionary and Bob shows up on the scene to do an acquisition appraisal. All right, Bob, how do you handle fixtures? It depends. What are we valuing? I think the first step that an appraiser would look at is what is the highest and best use of this property? As it sits, as of that date of value, is the highest and best use continued use of this potential? You didn't bring this word up, but I'm going to say it anyway. Special use property. Oh, gross. No, I don't. mm -mm, I hate that word. (laughs) Or is it something different? And I think the highest and best use would be a big component of which direction you go with evaluation of those fixtures. You've got to make a determination first whether it's even a fixture. Correct. Or whether it's personality. And and that's a tough decision to make, and that's always driven by the market. So you, let's, let's say, um, you know, pick your special purpose property. Let's say it's a... Um, if you uh, use that word one more time, you know how <laughs> I feel about special purpose properties. <laughs> Just kidding. Go on. Um, let's say it's a bowling alley. And those what are the little kiosks that pop the ball up there? I'm, it's not a kiosk, but it's a, you know what I'm talking. It's like the little, little feeder thing. thing, yeah. Balls. I mean, there's what eight screws that attach that to the ground. Is it permanently affixed? I think by that definition, by the appraiser's definition, it probably is. But what if that's not its highest and best use anymore? That's what I would be looking at. Is how does the market look at this going forward? So you're saying a key factor in determining whether something is a fixture or not is the highest and best use. Correct. Okay. Well, one of the factors, I think. Now, if if you're stepping into the property, you're going to do an inspection, and are you going to, do you take the owner's opinions or input into account? Yeah, I think you listen. I always listen. I'm always listening to the owner or to the acquisition agent or whoever that may be, because they oftentimes have good insight. You know, is the potential fixture, I mean, let me change properties. I didn't say special purpose there, but let's change properties. Let's say it's a convenience store. Is the canopy owned by the owner or is it owned by the tenant? Are the underground storage tanks owned by the fee owner or by the tenant that's in place? And there's a lot of different nuances there that would take you from 
fixture to maybe trade fixture. And those are some just some additional components that I would look at in determining whether or not it's valued or how it's valued in what I do. And I've seen condemnors and I've seen landowners approach it both ways. You know, maybe there's a benefit tax-wise to calling it personal property, not a fixture. Maybe that's the angle that one side's taking. Well, you know, tell me what you think of this. I've gotten calls from appraisers trying to make a determination and they say, I, I need some legal advice. I need to know what whether this is a fixture or not. And my response back to them is, that's not legal advice. I can tell you what the mm-hmm. law says, but determining whether something's a fixture is a question of fact, right? It's not a, right. it's not a legal determination. Right. So, and maybe we'll look at, at least in Virginia, there's a three-part legal test. Let's just take a quick look at what Virginia's is. I think it's very similar to what you see around the country. Okay. So <clears throat> if you're running into something and you're trying to make a determination of whether or not it's a fixture, the first thing you're going to look at is it next to the land and next to the land and how is it connected. And in Virginia, at least, that's given the least amount of weight. Then the second thing you're going to look at is how has it been adapted to the property? Or how has the property been adapted to the fixture? And that's given quite a bit more weight. And then the third, and this is the one where we really get in the weeds, is what was the owner's intent? And that is absolutely the most paramount factor to consider. It's given the greatest weight, but sometimes the owner's best interests are directly contradictory to the agencies, right? And so the owner may say one thing, may say, yes, this is a fixture, or no, this is not a fixture because he or she wants it moved, but... Everything, all the evidence would suggest otherwise. But if a fixture is like, it's a fact, it's it's fixture or it's not, do, is that something that you do or can or should take into consideration is what the owner wants or what's best for them? My job is to look at it the way the market looks at it. And usually you're right, it's, it's, it's a fact. So underground storage tanks, for example, I mean, there's, there's lots of white papers and recognized methods and techniques that would call that a fixture, right? And logically, it's below ground. It's got to be a fixture. But I get argued the other way sometimes, especially if it's a total take. They want it relocated. They don't want it valued. They want it to be relocated to their new spot. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, does that answer a little bit of your question, Kristen? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think as a relocation agent, it's really important to me that when I see an appraisal report, I can see what was considered realty and what was considered personality. And I I cannot tell you how many times I am on uh, a case when I wasn't involved early on and I get an appraisal report and it'll detail out all the improvements and the damages and the cost to cure. And and then it'll say a little paragraph like there was personal property on site. (laughs) That's it. Speaking of ugly words, like special use properties, you know, use PAP, Uniform Standards Professional Appraisal Practice, kind of an ugly word, standards one, two, says that's the appraiser's job is mm-hmm. to identify the real property and then any other, and I'm going to read it here, personal property, trade fixtures, or intangible items that are not real property, but are included in the appraisal. So that's our job is to kind of outlo- outline those items for you, Kristen, and, and yeah. help you with your job. So when you show up, and let's say it's something that's got a number of items, call them items, which could go either way maybe could be classified as personal property, maybe could be classified as a fixture. Do you flag those things on the site and then make a determination and say, I've got to figure out what to do with this walk-in cooler, walk-in freezer or something like that? Or do you just pretty much know or have a good idea? 
I like to think I've got a good idea, but then I'll look at one this afternoon and I'll have to go back to the drawing board. Um, I think you usually have a good idea. You do enough of these acquisitions and enough of this litigation that you kind of figure out where they fall. Yeah, I did a little research for this podcast. And and one of the things is there's a gray area on in Oklahoma is billboards. From talking to some attorneys that deal with these things, there's some case law out there that says it's real estate, some case law out there that says it's a trade fixture. And so they kind of go back and forth as what's the proper measure of just compensation? Is it to relocate or is it a, a function of the income? Interesting. And real quick for our listeners, can you give us a brief description of the difference between a fixture and a trade fixture? That's really important to us relocation folks, but. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not looking right at the definition, but a a trade fixture to differentiate from a fixture is simply something the tenant put up for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is my simple breakdown of it. Right. And in relocation terms, a trade fixture, a fixture is considered real property therefore not eligible for relocation for moving expenses. And a trade fixture is considered personality, which is eligible for moving reimbursement. That's my understanding of it as well. Does the relocation agent have any say in any of this? I would want to hear what Kristen has to say because she's got more experience probably. She probably deals with uh, relocation a lot more often than I do. I may get there and identify certain things, but I would be, I would want to know what she's got to say. I wouldn't say, shut up, Kristen. You know. <laughs> Dave says that to me all the time. I do not. I know. Well, you know Just what? Some I'm, of the time. I'm really refreshed to hear you say that because my ideal relocation situation would be that I am involved early and that I can be there at the appraisal inspection with you and with the owner of the property and the displacee, if that happens to be somebody different than the owner of the property. And I really love to communicate with you. And I have people ask all the time, well, do you tell the appraiser what to do? No, I'm not for a second going to tell you, hey, this hydraulic lift, you need to call that a a fixture. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But what I will do is I'll say, hey, Bob, this lift over here, that's going to come up. That's going to come up. Would you just, would you mind making a note in your appraisal about what you considered that to be? And I often wonder like if the appraiser's, are annoyed with us relocation folks pointing additional things out or if it's helpful. So I hope it's helpful. It's certainly helpful to the displacee and it's helpful to me. If you are going to make a note of, you know, that I considered that hydraulic lift personal property, it may be moved. Great. Thank you. Let's back up the truck. So you need, you as a relocation agent need to know whether something is a fixture or whether it's personality. Yes. And And you're telling me you don't make that determination. No, I don't. But I need to know. Uh, Bob or other appraisers. King Bob. He's not the only determiner of (laughs) fixtures in the United States and in the world, but it's the appraiser. So the relocation agent is going to need input from the appraiser. Are you like pinging on them saying, hey, got to know this hydraulic lift. Is it, are you considering it a fixture? I'm going to ask him, but what what I'm going to do more is I'm going to try to provide as much information as I can to Bob, because I'm going to be talking to possibly the tenant who might say, hey, we installed that hydraulic lift six months ago, and it, it I know it's got those heavy bolts, but we've got a guy who's going to move it. It belongs to us. We intend to take it with us when we move across the street. That's information that I can give to Bob. I'm not telling Bob, hey, man, we need that to be personality, but I'm giving him information that he might not otherwise have. But, c- but couldn't there be a situation where the appraiser is going to say, no, that's a fixture, and I'm going to appraise it into the value of the take. And you're like, 
dude, I have relocated 50 of these before. Of course we're going to relocate this. I'm not going to argue with Bob at the onset, but that might be something that will come up in an appeal later. I mean, it's not going to go away for me. <laughs> Bob, what do you think? Are you the boss? Yeah, he's the boss. Uh, I don't want that. I don't know that I want that pressure. Um, Too bad. Yeah, I mean, I've got to make a decision, and and I've got to have the credit. And this kind of gets back to highest and best use to me. What's the continued use of this property? Is it uh, Bob and Dave's rundown auto shop that is at the end of its life? So then, how much does that actually contribute to the total value, or is it a continued use of you know we're competing with I don't know what's a big tire shop, Pet Boys or something like that? Right. And so. Yeah, it's got a, it's got a continued use. Roof, there's whatever twenty thousand rooftops within five minutes, and there's a major interstate running right in front of us. And so, yeah, the continued no competition within miles. So, of course, the highest and best use is a continued use. In, in that instance, I would value it as a fixture. Okay, well, let's let's go down that rabbit hole. Let's say that there is a an old mechanical shop where they inspect your. They might get, sell you some used tires. They'll change your oil. And it's cinder block building. The building itself is probably 80 or 90 years old. Very little use. And there are a lot of commercial, they're, they're, what's the word I'm looking for? Not gentrifying. Help me out here. It's being, the area is being revitalized. They're tearing down buildings. They're building office buildings, et cetera. And you know that this is never, ever going to be a car repair shop again. But they happened to have installed a brand new hydraulic lift. They're bad businessmen. <laughs> They're really bad businessmen. What are you going to do? <laughs> I don't know, counselor. I have no idea what I'm going to do in that instance. You know, <laughs> try to find some sort of reasonable way to to determine fair market value and, and hope, hope that it's consistent with just compensation along the way. Because otherwise, you're looking at a situation of significant obsolescence, significant depreciation. Let's say that hydraulic lift, it was $50,000, but the whole place is only worth $100,000. It's kind of like the situation of a, this makes more sense to me because it's it, it just resonates with me considering my life. But I've got a pool in the backyard, let's say, that costs $100,000 to build. And yet when I go to sell it, I'm only going to be able to get 10 grand out of it, contributory value. Same thing with that lift. I go to sell this property. I'm only going to get 10 grand out of that $50,000 hydraulic lift. What's just, what's fair is just compensation equal to fair market value. And uh, my job is to give fair market value. And so I would defer, I would have to add some depreciation in there for that item Mm -hmm. in order to come to market value conclusion. Right. My company, Blackbird Right-of-Way, based in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, is the proud sponsor of this episode of Infrastructure Junkies. And we have big news. Blackbird has deepened its bench. In addition to providing top-notch relocation assistance services, Blackbird is a full-service, DBE-certified right-of-way company. And we've added negotiations and condemnation support directly on the team. Call us or check out our brand new website at blackbirdrow.com. That's blackbirdrow.com. I think this is a perfect time to dive a little more deeply into this inherent tension between the agency's interests and the landowner's interests. There can be situations where the depreciated value of that item is much, much less than the cost to move it. And so the agency says, 
make it a fixture because we want to pay the depreciated value. We do not want to pay to move this. It's going to cost us a million dollars to move this. The depreciated value is $50,000. And I've seen the exact opposite. There's a famous uh, Virginia Supreme Court case where it was a Taco Bell and they wanted all the items in the restaurant to be considered fixtures. In other words, you would think you can move the fryer and you can move the pots and pans. They wanted it to be considered fixtures and valued in place and part of the appraisal. And of course, the agency's like, we're not going to do that. You can move this stuff. You just put it in the back of a U-Haul. So there's an inherent there's an inherent tension there. And what do you guys see from your front? Before Bob answers, I'm going to make it a little more complicated, okay? And it's this. When I go into a, a Taco Bell, which... Gross. Just because Taco Bell is probably like the best Mexican restaurant in Texas, isn't it? Oh, my God. No. <laughs> Taco Bueno maybe won that, that title. I'm on board with Bueno. Heck, yeah. I am a, Taco Bell. I'm a huge fan of Taco Bueno. I've actually displaced two... Three, two Taco Buenos? Anyway, I digress. Leave them alone. I know. Leave Taco Bueno alone. So uh, to make it even a little more complicated, besides like the owner's interest and the agency's interest, a lot of times there's another party involved and it's the business owner, which is a tenant. And so my, um, and then this is something that I I think about all the time. I cannot tell you how many times I've gone into work with a business displacee that's a tenant and they've put, you know, $150,000 into their little unit in the strip mall of improvements. And it's like, Oh, I'm sorry. That's, I mean, sorry about you. I can pay you some reestablishment, you know, 25 grand that should do it. Right. And then the owner of the building is getting the value of those improvements. Now, when we're talking about fixtures, like whether it's a hydraulic lift or a walk-in cooler or whatever it is, do you give any weight to the fact that maybe the tenant bought that and owned it. There may not be anything about it in the lease, but you know for a fact, like the owner of this, you know, Chevron gas station, they paid for the installation of this walk-in cooler. It technically belongs to them in that way. Does that carry any weight with you on your determination? I I think it could. It would have to be, I don't know, you'd have to have some really good grounds to back all that up, I think. But I, I think it could. I'd have to read the lease. And I would have to know specifically who owns that property. I mean, if the lease says that anything you add to this property becomes a part of the real property and falls to the owner, then, you know, the tenant may be in a really rough spot right there. For sure. And I hijacked your question, Dave, which was about the the, the differing interests between the agency and the owner, which also then all can include the tenant. But when everybody's got these conflicting interests in, in whether or not something's a fixture... That makes it more difficult, I would think. All right, Bob, let me ask you, and you got to be honest. This is like 60 minutes now. We've gone from infrastructure junkies to 60 minutes. Tick, 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 tick. All right. You're hired by the agency, and it's in the agency's best interests to determine something to be a fixture. Does that come into your analysis whatsoever? No. Tick, 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 tick. No. Are you sure? Positive. You know, we've had some appraisal episodes where, and and some guests have said, an appraiser is beholden to he who pays his or her check. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah. I haven't heard those episodes. I would have to hear those. Revenge of the appraisers. Yeah. Revenge. Okay. I'll have to. Was that Ross? Yeah. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. (laughs) He doesn't have many friends in the appraisal world. He's kind of a glass half half empty kind of guy sometimes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) No, you you can't be. And because you know this as well as I do, you're going to have to follow some sort of methodology and technique. Otherwise, the next time I'm on the stand, you're going to butcher me. 
over what I did. That's secondary. Primarily, you need to do what, the, the way it should be done as defined by the market. So, so um, if you've been if you've been hired, I'm going to ask you straight up: if you've been hired on a sure. 200 parcel project, okay, correct, and it's the same agency, you're getting you know whatever your fee is to do 200 commercial appraisals, which is going to be a lot of damn money. And yeah. the agency comes to you, of course, not in its official capacity, and says, Bob, if this widget located inside of this building is personal to you, it's going to cost us a million dollars to move it. But if you value it in, it's only 50000 Come on, Bob. Uh, yeah. Now, you, you've got to call it like you've got to call it like it is. 200 parcels or two parcels. First off, I've never had a job like that. Second off, I'd have to hire people. You want one? To, to keep them. Yes, I do. As long as you're not going to mandate what my value is, I'm on board with that. Now, I don't think you can. I, I think you've got to, first off, I've got to sleep at night. And second of all, what do you want your, how do you want to be seen? And I, you, you want to be seen as a guy that's straightforward. I, yeah. In my view, you know, I may think it's worth a dollar and you may think it's worth a dollar and 10 cents. Well, okay, we can argue about that. But if I'm at a dollar and you're at a million dollars and you know, something is uh, askew there, let's say. I don't, well, I, I don't think it would take long for you to be the shady guy. You know, no, if, you, it, if you operate under those. It, it wouldn't. And Bob, I knew what the answer was before you gave it to me. And I knew what you were going to say because you're an ethical guy. But I just wanted to do that to highlight this inherent tension between agency interests and sometimes landowner interests sure. and how your <laughs> determination can cause a huge swing in how much money is spent. Yeah, yeah I, but I think it's good to note those things up front so that because most of this stuff, as you guys know, gets work, worked out in negotiations somewhere down the road. You know, I think it's good to identify some of those difficult points at the beginning. Absolutely. Hey, you know what? We have something brand new to the show. We do. We have a new, uh, a new little bit, Bob. You're the first person to participate in Infrastructure oh Junkies. God. Riddle me this. <laughs> and it's going right, to it's going to have a music theme since you're a musician. Of course it is. Oh so, my God. so Riddle me this is a segment where we're just going to ask you a question and we're going to kind of pontificate about the answer together. And and if you're wrong, trust us. Kristen will let you know. Of course. Billy Squire. Oh, yes! No, correct! No, no. Do you know who that is? Of course he knows who that is. He's got all the albums. Everybody oh, does, Kristen. Right. Oh, no. Everybody over the age of 45 has all the albums, and you know it. The, okay, let's get back to Riddle Me This. Would okay. you like to ask him the question? You ask. It was your thought. It was and, my And thought. I will tell you this, Bob. Kristen and I spent approximately two hours last night discussing this topic and we're not going to spend two hours now we're going to spend about you know a couple minutes but i just want to tell you we've spent a lot of time working through this question that's not hyperbole okay here's the it's, question it's hyperbole say it Hi right hyperbole hyperbole here is the question if kurt cobain had not killed himself would near would nirvana be as significant and popular as they are today or would they be like just kind of a throwaway 90s band like third eye blind or something. Right, like a third eye blind or oasis or something. Oasis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That definitely helped the, the the view of Nirvana, in my opinion. I'm sure you guys disagree. But, well, yeah, I don't. 
do you go near as far without that. Do you think that they were revolutionary? No. You don't. False. I don't. <laughs> well, I, I, you no, know, he's given two answers, and the first one is absolutely correct. Right. You know, I, I still debate, was Jimi Hendrix really that good? Prince could play guitar better, you know, That's and a had a longer point. career. Yeah. So there's no question that the suicide turned him into a, you know, a demigod, right? Right. But that then raises the question, was he just another grunge band, Nirvana, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, or is there something that sets them apart? And after two hours of discussion and debate last night. And listening Bob, to Nirvana. And listening to a lot of Nirvana. And there isn't that much to listen to, so we listen to some a bunch of times. We arrived at the exact opposite conclusion on that. My reason was, as a lot of our listeners probably know, I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan. They are my grunge band that has my heart forever. But, and I love Pearl Jam. Yes. And Pearl Jam has stood the test of time, and they've evolved, and it, every album is a masterpiece with one exception. We'll discuss that on another episode. But... Nirvana Riot X sucks. <laughs> right. When when Nirvana Nevermind dropped, I was in middle school. And I remember sitting at a track meet with my yellow Sony Walkman and my friend Kate Carlson. Hi, Kate. I don't think you listen to this podcast, but hello. I, I put those little headphones on and she pushed play. And I heard Nirvana Nevermind and it blew my mind i'd never heard anything like it and i remember listening to it and be like this is like naughty or something like this is oh my gosh i feel like this can i am i supposed to be listening to this and it like rocked my world and then they come out with this video with these like anarchist cheerleaders and the guy mopping and it's all gritty and dark and dirty and like awesome but it blew my little teenager mind and continued to blow my mind for years after that i wasn't a teenager i was actually in law school when they came out and i was equally as taken aback and initially i liked nirvana better than pearl jam initially but what nirvana did is they essentially took a punk vibe and added melody to it yes and you don't see that a lot you don't hear a lot of melody with the sex pistols or the ramones or anything like that but he did that and then you know they'd he'd have these minor chords and he'd have these lyrics and i'm like is he really saying i think i'm dumb i think i'm dumb over and over is that like what is what's wrong with this guy is he singing about having an upset stomach and antacids and you know <laughs> cherry flavored st- what is happening and then of course the video came out and um Dave Grohl is, in fact, the star of that video, not the tatted-up cheerleaders. With his disco drum beat, which he stole from disco, by the way. That's right. Look it up. So, so Bob, have you changed your mind now that we convinced you? No, it's still a fixture. I mean, no. Um, (laughs) uh, They're not a fixture. No, I I just... uh, They just sound like complaining teenage kids to me from the songs that I remember, but (laughs) it's been a minute. Yeah. How long? When did they first drop? Like uh, 92? 90, 91. Yeah, it was before okay. 92. Yeah. Was it 91? Yeah, 91. That makes Bleach sense. came out, but Nevermind is the one where they blew up. Yeah. Because so. right after that, Pearl Jam came out, right? About the Pearl same Jam time. Pearl Jam 10, 10 dropped 10 the same year as Nirvana Nevermind. Same it was year. really weird how it was just, you know, grunge was breaking at the same time. Yeah. But I agree, Bob. Pearl Jam, the test of time, they have evolved as a band. I think that's partially due to they hung on to the same band members who have grown together. Except for the drummer. Well, Matt Cameron's been there since the 90s, that's hasn't true. he? That's true. He's so been there a while. a while. Yeah. But trying to interpret some of the Pearl Jam lyrics. Yellow um, Ledbetter? Yes. You're like, okay, i got to look this up. Oh, no, so you look it up, and there's four different... Di- 
it, maybe it's like fixtures and trade fixtures. There's like four different definitions of what he's actually saying in the song. Eddie doesn't Crazy. even know what he's saying in Yellow Lead Nobody does. And you know, at, at the beginning, all, Eddie was all about, I hate my parents. My parents are terrible. They screwed my life up. And he even opened Better Man one time on a live version saying, this is about the a-hole who married my mama. You know, and I'm like, Eddie, you know, God, just leave the parent problems behind. His solo album features his dad, though. Like his I dad's voice. That. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so really? yeah, I didn't know that. his, yeah, his late found, father. He's his, his late dad. father. He found he found vocals. Somebody sent him vocals from his late father, and he's got it on his new solo album, which is called Earthlings. In case you're wondering. Anyway, Nirvana, Pearl Jam. Those were the days. Real quick before we move on, favorite PJ album. Favorite what? Pearl Jam album. Oh, Pearl Jam. Okay, but you said DJ. You know, I probably some of their early stuff, and I can't remember the name uh, of a specific album. But there was one with did they redo Rearview Mirror, which is an old rock song. You know what? Uh, Rearview Mirror is the name of it. It's a, it's I'm trying to remember what the original. That was in that was in verses, that right? Was in verses. Yeah. Yep. Great yes. song. Yeah. I gather I speed from you, effing with me. Yeah. Once and for all, I'm far away. Hard to believe. Yeah. Finally, the shades are raised. Just talking about parents again. Of course. <laughs> Is that the one where the, it's a picture of a sheep? Yes. yes, that's, yes. It. That's, that's it. That's it. That's, that's it a right great there. album. What's your favorite, Dave? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I love Versus was my favorite for years and years. It's hard to get away from 10. It, it just, that's a perfect album you, start to finish. It's like, what's your favorite besides 10 should be the question. That, it really should. Yeah. It really should. I, well, I, I forget. Yeah. Uh, okay, next, last Pearl Jam trivia. What is their last album to have gone platinum? Bob, do you have any idea? I have no clue. Is it clue. Yield? Yield. Which, they, by the way, nobody asked me. That might be my favorite Pearl Jam yeah. album. I love Yield. And No Code is really good, too. It is. It is. All right, th enough of that. Let's get Wait, back. Hey, is anybody still listening to this? I, I don't know, but thank you for participating in our first ever Riddle Me This. I think it was a hit. <laughs> All right, let's get back. Let's be clear about something. When you're talking about fixtures and you're talking about whether something can be can or should be classified as a fixture, I want to be clear. In Virginia, at least, and I think this applies in many other jurisdictions, whether that item can actually be removed, whether it's possible for it to be removed, is not the test. There are things that can easily be removed, like in that Taco Bell case I was talking about, which could be fixtures. So, do you ever consider whether it could be removed? Because if you if you are, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> what what kind Bob's of a loaded like, question I am is Never this? coming back. <laughs> Riddle me this, Bob. Answer an impossible question. Ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> I can't answer that, Counselor. There are too many questions in the room. But you know, um, can't question. anything can't anything be moved? I, I think about this all the time. My my parents were trying to do some renovations at their house and build like this outdoor kitchen thing. And my mom kept asking for things that were like cost prohibitive. And she would ask the contractor, like, can we do this? And he's like, you can do anything. You right, can do right. anything, but the cost might be infinite. You know, like you can do anything. Right. Can you move a concrete floor? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Anything's movable. I, I was involved in a, it was my personal property. One of the first houses I bought, my attorney at the time read the contract and he said, you need to make sure and put in there that the carpet stays. And I said, why would I do that? <laughs> and, and he was like, well, I've seen instances where it was deemed not part of the real property. And I was like, really? And of course, I've done a ton of residential property. I've never seen that in anything. 
but maybe it was out of an abundance of caution. So to your point, yes, I think you can move anything. And from my perspective, it gets back to what's the market norm for that. You know, a freestanding stove is considered uh, personal property. It's not considered part of the real property because it's not directly or permanently attached, I guess I should say. Mobile home. In, uh, in, in, in the Midwest, maybe you guys don't have it over there in Virginia, but we have mobile homes and manufactured homes. Are they considered uh, real property or are they considered something less? They're right. considered tornado magnets. There's so many, <laughs> you know, with what we do, you come across things that are just total anomalies all the time. And I, I have a really good example of this. I relocated a, a masonry business and they had done all of the brick sculptures the brick artwork at the anatole which is a famous hotel in dallas Mm -hmm. and they were these brick panels that were carved and then the bricks were placed like in a certain way and they had one of the proofs in their office like behind their front desk okay and it was massive i mean it was like 10 feet wide and it was an art installation but these were bricks that were freaking like attached to the wall like installed into the building so somehow they got him to say this is an art fixture and we paid to move it and this is like Mm. painstakingly taking apart a brick sculpture like detaching it from the wall numbering the bricks putting them back in the same order at the other place but that's i mean you don't often have like bricks that are installed in a building that you move as personal property but we did do that nobody does that no it wasn't cheap. I don't remember the price tag, but it was not cheap. Well, Bob, let's talk about a restaurant situation, okay? And if you have Ann and Andy's restaurant, Gourmet Southern Cooking, <laughs> and you're going to displace them, well, they they acquired an oven and they acquired a fryer and these things, and it's I think it's pretty easy to say we can move these things. But suppose you have another restaurant, like in this case, a Taco Bell, keep going back to that, where they say, no, whenever we buy or sell a Taco Bell, all that stuff is already in place. In other words, if you buy a Taco Bell, you don't move Taco Bell stuff from another location. It's bought in place. You buy the Taco Bell building and you've got your fryer and you've got your oven and you've got your refrigerators. Does that come into play? That did come into play in a Virginia case, but would you consider that? Yeah, I mean, I think you'd have to consider it. If you're buying a Taco Bell, there would seem to me anyway to be an obvious business value or going concern component of it would need to be separated out from the real estate. And is that where you're going with that? Because that's what those things are bought for. I mean, those things are bought because of the, if it's, assume it's not some sort of triple net lease situation, they're, they're bought for their income, triple net ground lease. They're bought for their income producing potential. Is that similar to like a hotel situation where if you're going to go purchase a hotel, there's an assumption that it's going to have furniture in each of the rooms? That's right. Yeah. 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 You, you're not going to want to move a bunch of dirty mattresses to a new hotel, right? Right. So do those become fixtures or is that a trade fixture? Or is it something else? Or is it still, or is it personality? Or is it personality? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question, Kristen. I would want you with me on that inspection to help me define that properly. I would think if it's a branded hotel, you're looking at trade fixtures. Yeah, to some degree. I've seen it. I've seen it called trade fixtures for sure. Hotel furniture, hotel TVs, things like mm-hmm. that. But you can see the. And it can be a huge component of value too. We did a restaurant. Not long ago, I think it was something like a Buffalo Wild Wings or something, but the package, the television package, that they, their literal cost, or they get to look at their cost component, was huge for TVs and satellite systems and all those things that appeal to their specific use. Oh, gosh. And, uh, yeah. They have like 
hundred like a hundred TVs in there, don't they? That's crazy. Yes, it's insane. Yes, it's heaven on game day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you, I, I get back to my original point here. You can see why your job is so important at the outset, because uh, yeah, absolutely. Then yeah. the relocation you, you agent. Can't, you can't fly through those two hundred properties either. <laughs> Like, you you know, if if you got you, you better take your time and slow down and do it right because there's so much nuance to to fix your trade, fix your personal property, highest and best use that's got to be addressed up front. That segues into what might be our last topic of discussion, and it's this. So you, as the appraiser, come onto the scene. You have to make a determination based on a three-part test or whatever the test is in the jurisdiction where you are. And you make that determination that something is or is not a fixture. Bonafide offer is then made based on your determination. The relocation agent then goes into action based on your determination. Ultimately, just compensation is not agreed upon. And as a result of that, they institute eminent domain proceedings. During the trial... The landowner claims that something was a fixture that you did not count as a fixture, right? Making sense so far? And the law says that it is a factual determination. The jury can figure it out. So you might have been off of the case for three years, and then the jury can then come back and make a determination as to whether or not you were right and you correctly valued the property. Maybe you said something should be relocated. They disagreed. They didn't have it relocated. And the jury comes through three years later, four years later, and says, no, that was a fixture. The appraiser should have paid for it. What about that? Any thoughts on that? Does that concern you? Does that keep you awake at night? Maybe it should. Yes. Yeah, it, should. Yeah, it does. That and did it get the value right? Did I remember to call the uh, seller on that property? Yeah, all those things are the things that haunt you at night and you know, wake you up early in the morning. Yeah. The going through that test uh, item by item. And that's why I, you want to have, from my perspective, I would want to have your input on it, Dave, if I'm working for you on the litigation side and yours too, Kristen, this is the three-step process. And this is how I arrived at my conclusion. Does that make sense? And do you guys agree or disagree? And it's, I think it's important for sometimes for somebody to disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, two people, what's the old saying? If two people always agree, one of them's unnecessary. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I think it's good for me to go through that process and you say, Bob, I think you're wrong. And here's why. And for me to either say, no, Dave, you're out in the left field. Or for me to say, you know why you're right on the money. I, this should have been considered. So uh, doing that at the outset, I think is, is crucial. Yeah. And just one more thing to keep everybody up at night. Suppose that (laughs) Bob comes in and determines something is personality and not a fixture and goes along his merry way, doesn't put it as part of the value of the property. And three years later, it goes to trial. And the landowner's position is that this was a fixture and you should have paid me for it in the appraisal. And the jury agrees. Then did you make a bona fide offer? Did you make a bona fide offer? Can the take be invalidated? You're stressing me out. I'm, yeah. <laughs> now you know what it's like to be a lawyer. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Noel, the point is, Bob, it, it, and to Bob, appraisers, anybody listening to this, is that this is such an incredibly important determination on the front end and has such far-reaching ramifications. And I just don't think it gets a lot of attention in our industry, in, unless there's a crisis, you know. 
Yeah, and I don't want to be in Bob's shoes. I mean, that to make that to have to make that determination. Oh, well, and there's a lot of things out there that aren't clearly defined. Like I can go to underground storage tanks and canopies and say, yeah, there, here's the textbook. Here's where my peers looked at these things and said that they're not that they are fixtures. But there's other items out there that aren't so clear that I think can more easily be argued from whatever perspective you're coming at. I will say. I bring everything back to relocation, as you know, but I sometimes feel like when I have to quote unquote, make a determination, whether something's eligible or not, there's a little bit of a freedom in knowing that like I'm following federal and state and local guidelines and regulations. It's either eligible or it's not. And if you're looking at it as what the market's calling for and you're doing your job and you're documenting that, like, isn't there a little bit of a, it's not like you just go in there and play God, like you're following the rules and the regulations and you're, you've got a methodology that works for you. There is a freedom in that. Like I, like if I have to go to a displacee and say, I'm really sorry, that's not eligible. That's not because Kristen Bennett is like, ha this is not eligible. I'm following the rules. And isn't there, isn't, isn't it similar for you when determining if something's a fixture? No, absolutely. When there's some, when there's some guidelines some standards, and then it helps you when that case rears its head three years, five years, 10 years down the road. Why did I do that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> why did I do that? Well, and then you get to looking through your, okay, here's why I did that. Yeah. I, mean, I went through these steps with Dave and with Kristen, and here's how we came to that conclusion yeah yeah any good examples of fixtures that you had to wrestle with you know i had a convenience store one time and i i I just from life circumstances i happened to know the director of the department i don't remember his his title the director of the department of transportation or something like that and there was a rub as to whether or not the canopy was fixture trade fixture or personal property. And at the end of the day, it all kind of worked out in negotiations. I think they considered it personal property because the owners were going to get some type of tax benefit that way, I want to say. But us three talking about it here for 45 minutes or however long, it's a difficult issue to wrap your head around. It's really difficult for the landowner because they don't know. All they know is I'm running a business out of here and I need that to effectively run my business. So I think there's a lot of confusion in the appraisal world, in the litigation world, and in the landowner's part, it's just a tough issue. I about wrestled with a monkey one time. My only good story is I met a monkey what? at an inspection for an acquisition. I mean, that's it was a smoking monkey. I'm sorry. That's my only really good acquisition. Can you, can we, I'm sorry. We're going to need a little more information. A smoking monkey? Was it on uh, fire go, or like smoking a cigarette or what? No, no, no. We go down to southeastern Oklahoma, right? Middle of nowhere. We the, the owner will not allow us to drive down the driveway. So we walk a half a mile back to this property. It's built into the side uh, of a hill. And it looks like us, us three built it overnight and we're <laughs> drinking along the way. Was so, it Joe Exotica? <laughs> no, it was not. Oh, okay. He was not far from there. Okay. Was it Carol Baskin? It was Carol Baskin. No. No, no. Winnie Wood, were, it was not far from there. But anyway, we were there and we go in the front door. They have all these animals in cages and we go in the front door. It's me and two attorneys and, and, and a gentleman from the Department of Transportation. Sounds like the, the start of a joke. <laughs> that, yeah, walk into a bar. Um, yeah, they had on their leather loafers and their slacks, which quickly got dirty. But we walk into the front door and the lady's really nice, says, well, look around. And I said, yeah, I'm going to walk into the room and take some pictures. And is there anybody I'm going to disturb? And she says, nobody but Matilda. 
and points over to the corner. It was kind of dark in there. And over in the corner is this monkey in a cage that's about, I don't know, four feet tall and about <laughs> that big round. So, of course, we all kind of turn and look at each other like we're on TV. And, of course, this lady's <laughs> killing the this lady's killing her, her, uh, her palm all right. And <laughs> she goes over and lets Matilda out of the cage, holds Matilda like a baby. The monkey goes crazy for the palm all. She gives the palm all to the monkey. The monkey goes to town on the cigarette. And we're all just sitting there looking at each other like, is this really happening? You want to <laughs> hold Matilda? No, we're good. <laughs> Thank you. Gives, takes the cigarette from the monkey, puts the monkey back in the cage. And um, from there on out, it was the normal inspection. <laughs> but <laughs> That might be the greatest right-of-way encounter story I've ever heard in my life. That well, is amazing. So did you count Matilda as a fixture or personality? <laughs> because it sounds like that's her natural environment, and she's part of that. She's <laughs> part of that place. They had her in a cage, so she was permanently affixed. Obviously. Oh, oh that's, a, that's great. <laughs> All right. I think this is a perfect note to end on. Bob Grace, thank you for joining the Infrastructure Junkies. It's been a great time. Thanks, Bob. Thank you for having me. Uh, both of you appreciate it. 